Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Do you know a student getting ready to go to college? Or are you looking at going back to school yourself? The Woodward Hines Education Foundation and the Get to College program help more Mississippians get to and through college to get certificates and degrees that lead to meaningful employment. They offer free college planning advice, including hands-on FAFSA completion assistance through in-person or virtual appointments. Visit gettocollege.org to learn more. This is MPB News. Hi, this is Karen Brown. Thanks for checking out the Mississippi Edition podcast. If you like what you hear, click subscribe, hit like, or leave us a comment if your app has that feature. Then find other MPB podcasts by searching MPB Think Radio on your favorite podcasting platform. Thanks. Good morning. It's 830 on Thursday, June 25th. I'm Karen Brown, and this is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. On today's show, with more than a 1,000 new cases of COVID-19 in two days, health professionals express growing concern over community transmission and the stress on the health care system. Then the economic pressure to change the flag builds as two state organizations call on lawmakers to take direct action. Plus, in today's book club, the Mississippi Book Festival kicks off a new podcast series about racism, anti-racism, and creating positive change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Mississippi's health experts are expressing growing concern that the state's health care system could become overwhelmed as hospitalizations and coronavirus cases have reached record numbers this week. The state has also passed 1,000 COVID-19 related deaths. State Health Officer Dr. Thomas Dobbs tells our Michael Guidry the rising numbers are due to widespread community transmission that could severely strain hospitals. We are seeing broad and widespread community-based transmission. And what that means is that previously we had a pretty good mix of people just picking it up in the community and then outbreaks like at a, at a uh, you know, an industry or a nursing home or, or you know, some, some specific location. But now we're just seeing people catching it from out in the community. It's not something that's remotely surprising. We've traced some of these things back to mass gatherings, to funerals, to um, social events that people are having in their, in their homes. And it's the same stuff that we've been worrying about and the same th- things that we've been warning about. So we're going to see more of it un- until people um, will engage and follow the existing executive orders that are out there and understand that wearing a mask and social distancing are going to be key elements to keep from spreading this and, and causing more and more uh, damage to, to our health and to our economy. You mentioned that the it, it, all indication is that this is this is widespread community transmission. What is the correlation or even causation between this massive community spreading and transmission and the the gradual reopening of the state's economy? Yeah, well, well, certainly people have opened more quickly or, or people have engaged in behaviors a lot more quickly than than we should have. We, we've done it way too 
too much. The existing orders and the existing guidelines are still pretty pretty prudent and in many ways restrictive. It's just that people aren't following them. Uh, this is something we've seen across the country. Uh, we've seen people just sort of throw abandon to the wind and try to go back to what was a previous normal. And we're just not in a place where normal is safe anymore. But as a, as a society, most or a lot of individuals, especially folks in a younger age group, say, you know, 18 to 40 sort of age range, um, we're seeing a lot of cases in that, that age group, are not following these guidances, and we're all going to pay for it. Early on, the the talk was that the summer months might provide a bit of a relief, but here we are in June, and we're seeing the virus is seemingly as active as ever. Will we have that summer lag, and can we anticipate this, if if not much changes, intensifying even more in the fall? Uh, yeah, so we're not certainly not surprised to see transmission with warmer weather, many of the South American countries and other places had pretty massive outbreaks in spite of climate. And when we go to the fall, the the combination of people going back to school, uh, you know, colleges starting back up, and weather cooling down a little bit, and then, you know, social events that people want to do, we anticipate that it could be extremely bad. We could see an overwhelmed healthcare system. We can see a scenario where people who get sick go to the emergency room and there are no rooms and there's no uh, capacity to take care of people, whether it's COVID, a heart attack, or whatever. Schools are about a month away, a little over a month away from from reopening if they continue on on a normal trajectory, a normal plan. Is it prudent for school children to be gathering in mass in school buildings across the state right now? This is something that we've been working with educators at length, um, especially the K-12 group. One of the things that we've we've come to, to believe and, and understand is that, um, first off, obviously we've got to educate our kids, and there are significant harms in educating kids. But based on a lot of the realities, we can probably educate kids quite safely. One of the things that really worries us, though, are these non-educational settings, extracurricular activities, you know, football, you know, if, if someone were unwise enough to have a pep rally, or, um, you know, other extracurriculars, choir, et cetera, where people are are doing things in close proximity that can spread the virus, and we don't we don't have a good feeling, a good comfort level at the Department of Health that those things can be done um, safely um, without some extreme modifications. So there's a lot of concern, but as far as getting kids educated, uh, we do have a, a comfort level that that can be done by and large quite safely. We've seen cases increase with with 18 to 29 year olds. Even though the fatality rate for for the younger people contracting the virus isn't high, uh, what are the the inherent dangers that still exist as members of that demographic transmit the disease uh, and continue to participate socially? Yeah, so that's driving everything, right? So um, we don't we're not all independent units that are independent of society in our communities. When anybody gets it. And, and then spreads it, we're, we're amplifying the effect for the entire population. And so what invariably we're going to see is it moving up the age ladder. Older folks are going to get it, people who have weakened immune systems, um, even family members of people who contracted it by undertaking some unwise sort of behaviors. And it, it, we're all connected, and it's going to end up penetrating, causing uh, unnecessary hospitalizations and deaths. It's inevitable. From what we've seen so far, we just need to prevent the future as much as we can. Dr. Thomas Dobbs, State Health Officer for the state of Mississippi. Thank you so much for your time and your insight. No, thank you for having me. 
in hospitals, bed space for coronavirus patients can be limited. Dr. Alan Jones of the University of Mississippi Medical Center tells us the fear is once those limited resources are exhausted, hospitals will struggle to care for the number of patients that they have. Right now, uh, the issue with that hospitals are facing is just trying to care for you know the patients, the patient populations that we were caring for before which already was resulting in some limitations in our capacity um, along with an additional pretty large cohort of uh, patients related to COVID. So it's just caused an an exacerbation of the already cramped uh, hospital capacity that we have. Were COVID beds or floors or particular areas designated for COVID patients. Have they maintained those spaces throughout this pandemic? Or or as cases started to drop, because there was a dip in there, did they free those rooms up for other situations? Um, well, we have had uh, at UMC, we've, we've only got a certain number of beds that we could take care of COVID patients in due to the, um, you know, kind of requirements that are uh, there for safely caring for those patients. Um, so, uh, you know, we, we specifically, our hospital has not really had changes or difficulty related to that, but, you know, it's a limited resource. And I think the concern that everybody's hearing right now from Dr. Dobbs and others is that, when you have a limited resource um, and you have a relaxation of the general sentiment that coronavirus is no longer an issue um, that results in spread, you will quickly use up that limited resource and we'll either have to revert back to some type of draconian measures associated with limitation movement and medical procedures, or um, hospitals won't be able to care for the number of patients that we'll have. What is the tipping point for number of cases, number of needed hospitalizations where emergency rooms, and I, I assume UMMC has the largest emergency room system, are, are overrun, and the beds are overrun, and the ventilators are not available because there are too many patients? You know, as you look at those numbers and you watch hospitalizations begin to rise, you'll take a little bit of time and and you'll see um, ventilator use and ICU use rise. As you begin to see those rises and those rises uh, are not either flattening uh, or trending back down over a period of weeks, that is going to pretend, you know, approaching uh, problematic areas problematic tipping points, if you will. Um, and like I said, it, it will occur. It's not if it occurs. It will occur if people continue to be out and about and around the way that they are now. We've been speaking to Dr. Alan Jones. He's the Assistant Vice Chancellor of Clinical Affairs at the University of Mississippi Medical Center. Thank you, Dr. Jones. Thank you. Dr. Dobbs and Dr. Jones emphasized the need to limit large gatherings, wear masks, and practice social distancing. Governor Tate Reeves has said he does not intend to return to a shelter-in-place order if numbers increase.
Coming up, the economic pressure to change the flag builds as two top state organizations call on lawmakers to take direct action. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. If you ever miss one of our locally produced shows or want to simply hear it again, you can find what you need at mpbonline.org or download our podcast app to your smartphone. MPB programming is on your schedule at mpbonline.org. I'm Karen Brown. Following an initial wave of social backlash over the state flag, Mississippi's business community is joining in the call for lawmakers to vote for change. This week, the Mississippi Economic Council ran a print ad signed by at least 500 of the state's most prominent business and industry leaders. President and CEO Scott Waller tells our Ashley Norwood the current flag is a hindrance when it comes to attracting businesses to the state. As our statement uh, said that this flag has a symbol in it that is considered globally as a symbol of, of, of hatred, prejudice. And to have that symbol as our as our banner for the state doesn't help us in terms of not only unifying our citizens, but it doesn't help us from a public perspective in the image of those outside of Mississippi. So from an economic standpoint, we want to always do everything we can to put our state in a position to be successful and in an impediment such as the state flag it's used against us. It's used against us in economic development. It's used against us in many other areas. And we feel like it, it, the time is now to change the flag and uh, p- particularly considering um, the, the fact that, you know, with everything going on and it is with not only with COVID, but some of the, some of the other stuff that we've seen, you know, across the country, it, it, it's important for us to put our best foot forward. And we can't do that if we have a state flag that doesn't represent all of our people. You mentioned a a recent polling. Could you talk to me about that and and what were your findings? Well, you know, we we have we have looked at this issue, as I said, for for more now than 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 20 years. And we we ran a survey last week, a polling survey of about 500 voters, likely voters across the state. And I'm, I'm really happy to say that for the first time that we have been doing this, we have a majority of Mississippians who favor changing the flag. In fact, uh, by 55, 41% likely voters in Mississippi said it's time to change the flag. Now, the thing that's interesting about this is this has been a complete shift from where we were in January of 2019. So getting that done now is, is really important because I think the public sentiment is there. And I think without question, everybody understands why this is so important as we recover from the economic losses of COVID-19. We got to show that Mississippi is open for business. And, and I will be honest with you, right now, the state flag could do so much to help give us that image. And I think it's the opportunity that we need to seize in order to get the flag changed. So are you and do you believe it should be left up to the voters then or should the legislature make that call? We have always believed that this this is a this could be a legislative action should be a legislative action and uh, you know we we strongly are encouraging our state leaders to to take action on this as soon as possible so that you know the sooner we do this the better the referendum takes months or possibly even years not to mention the fact that it will will, will bring about 
you know, some publicity on the state that I do not believe will be very favorable during that time frame. So I think it's, you know, the time is now. We, we're asking our legislators to take action and make this change. And, and really and truly, we have to, to move forward and, and, and start putting this behind us so we can focus on other things that are so important. Scott Waller is the president and CEO of the Mississippi Economic Council. The Mississippi Bankers Association stood behind changing the flag, the state flag in 2001 when voters decided to keep the 1894 flag containing the Confederate emblem. Gordon Fellows, president of the association, says they're reaffirming their position. We, we supported changing the flag in 2001. Um, we, we, we've continued to support changing the flag uh, and um, are happy to be able to chime in again. Uh, given that the legislature is now, I think, seriously considering um, taking some sort of steps. So um, so that's the first point. And um, to your broader question, why is it important? It's important for a lot of reasons. You know, um, banks in the state employ a diverse set of employees that, that do a lot of different things uh, and come from a lot of different backgrounds. And, and we feel from the employment point of view, the employer point of view, it's important that the state flag represent everybody and, and, and be you know a flag that doesn't offend um, an important part of our population is the state. Um, from, from a broader economic point of view, uh, our members certainly feel like um, the flag puts us at an economic disadvantage in terms of talent recruitment. Um, when we try to bring out-of-state people in to work in Mississippi, uh, and it puts us at an economic disadvantage when, when, we, when we as a state work to bring in out-of-state companies. Um, and so, so there, there, there are a lot of different reasons to support changing the flag. Um, and, and it, it, it is a complicated debate. Um, and there are certainly a lot of opinions on it, but we thought it was important and our board thought it was important for, for the association to remind people as this debate is, is happening that, that the banks in the state, uh, and, and, and frankly, the broader business community at large, um, support changing the flag. And, and now's a good time to do it. So what do you what do you want to see flown? What kind of flag do you think is is necessary or appropriate for the state? Well, you know, I, our association doesn't have an opinion on 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 what option should be adopted. There are a lot of good options out there. Um, I think you know personally, I think it's important that that we fly a flag that 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 everybody can unite under. But our point in, in chiming in now is to say the flag we have right now is not that. It's not a flag that brings people together. It's, it's a flag that's divisive. Gordon, uh, is there anything that I didn't ask you about this subject that you think is also important to include? Yeah, you know, it, to me, we have great leadership in our state right now, um, all the way around the business community and the elected official community and the, uh, and the, and the churches um, and in the towns and local governments. Um, th- this is an issue... Uh, even though it is complicated, it requires great leadership, and I think we have the leadership to do it. All right. Gordon Fellows, the president and CEO of the Mississippi Bankers Association. Gordon, again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Despite calls from business and industry leaders for lawmakers to take the lead and change the flag, Governor Tate Reeves remains committed to placing the decision in the hands of the voters. In a Facebook post yesterday, Reeves said, I'm torn on the path forward for our state. I've been thinking, praying, and listening. I still don't have all the answers. I still think a vote of the people that this flag represents is the best way.
Coming up in today's book club, the Mississippi Book Festival kicks off a new podcast series about racism, anti-racism, and creating positive change. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Hi, I'm Ryder Taff, Portfolio Manager at New Perspectives, a fee-only financial advisory and co-host of Money Talks. Each week, we take your personal finance questions and tell you about a money topic we hope you find helpful. Money Talks can be heard Tuesdays at 9 a.m. on MPB Think Radio. Podcasts can be found on our website, money.mpbonline.org, or on your smart device's podcasting platform. This is Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. I'm Karen Brown. The Mississippi Book Festival is recommending a reading list of more than 50 books called Affirm Black Life. It's the basis for a series of conversations on racism, anti-racism, and creating positive change. Kicking off the series called Uncomfortable, Holly Lang, executive director of the book festival, talks about the first podcast, a conversation with First Lady of Jackson, Dr. Ebony Lumumba. Ebony Lamumba has been the host of our podcast since the beginning, and when the Ahmad Arbery murder occurred, she and I were trading text messages and talking about our emotions and our feelings, and I said, we should have a conversation about this, and she said, we should, and we tabled it for a little while, and then George Floyd happened, and we said, we need to figure out how we can all talk about it. And, and I talked to her as a white mother, and she talks to me as a black mother. All of the things are around that. But we wanted it to be sort of a resource, not just us talking to ourselves out loud, really. We really wanted it to be a tool for people to use and say, okay, we hear these two women talking. We can talk about it, too. And they also, by the way, give us books to read for young children, for middle grade readers, and then for adults. The books that we talk about and we want to talk about run the gamut. We talk about poetry. We talk about memoir, biography, fiction, nonfiction. It was an opportunity for us as friends to talk out loud and hopefully help people in some way learn and do better. You provide a book list which has in excess of 50 titles. You're not suggesting that people read 50 plus (laughs) books to be able to relate to this podcast, I take it. No, and really, we don't want to overwhelm people. That was the point, that this is a conversation between two friends, and we make recommendations. As a book festival person, I get text messages from my friends all the time saying, hey, what are you reading? Sort of along those same lines. One thing Ebony and I have both noticed is virtual events. There are authors reading books all the time now. There are publishers promoting books virtually. And so we thought, how can we give people a resource, a list of books that they might be interested in that's not overwhelming? And of course, I mean, I think if you look at this list and say 50, you would think, oh my goodness, that's a lot of books. But there's something in it for everyone. And we're not saying you have to get on this list. I've seen many of social media posts where someone says, you must read these 10 books to have a better understanding. But I don't always relate to every single book I read. And if I can't get into it, I'm not going to go any further. So this is an opportunity for someone to say, I'll start this book. It may resonate with me. It may not. I may not be able to get through it, but I can move my way down the list. Ebony and I recorded another follow-up to this that talks specifically about six or seven books. And we talk about Michael Twitty's book, The Cooking Gene, A Journey Through African-American Culinary History in the Old South. Because to some people, food is relatable. They may not understand Jim Crow laws. They may not understand poetry that may not work for them, but they may have a better understanding of what's going on through food and through black authors who talk about food. It's just another way to open eyes and open ears. The series is called Uncomfortable, and I assume that's because 
conversations among blacks and whites can be uncomfortable in recognizing disparities and the like. Sure. Ebony named it. She also named our first podcast. She's a very creative <laughs> We t- We really wanted it to be uncomfortable because it's not only uncomfortable conversations between me and Ebony, a, a white woman and a black woman, but also among me and my white friends. That's one of the things that we talk about in this podcast. You know, it's not up to me to talk to Ebony about racism. It's up, up to me to talk about other white people I know about racism and how they are addressing it, how they are dealing with it, how they can recognize it. And I'm learning along with them, too. And that's how the conversation began with Ebony. I did not want to put it on her to educate me. I wanted her to help give me some guidelines and to navigate uncomfortable conversations. And so that's how we landed on this. Will this continue, this series? Yes. We recorded another session, a follow-up with these six books, and then I am happily retiring from podcast world. <laughs> Ebony does a much better job than I do, and she is going to interview some of the authors from this list. We've already got a panel created with Kiese Lamon and C. Lee McGinnis and Charlie Braxton. Judgment Ward is going to do a podcast, playing conversation with Ebony. Angie Thomas is going to do something with us. There are lots of opportunities, and we will keep the conversation going. Tragically, this doesn't seem to end, and there could be no end to this conversation. It's an unfortunate confluence that some of the best Mississippian writers right now are black writers with amazing books that we all need to read and we can all talk about and we would like to promote our authors within. How can people find the podcast? It is called Write on Mississippi, W-R-I-T-E. It is on our website. You can click the link over to MPB. MPB has it on their website. We'll also do lots of social media promotion. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, typically under MS Book Festival or Mississippi Book Festival. Check out this reading list because it's very comprehensive and obviously a lot of thought went into it. But listen to the podcast. We've been speaking with Holly Lang. She is the executive director of the Mississippi Book Festival. Holly, thanks so much. Karen, thank you so much. I appreciate it. This has been Mississippi Edition on MPB Think Radio. Thanks for listening to the Mississippi Edition podcast from MPB News and MPB Think Radio. Don't forget to subscribe if you haven't already. And if your app lets you, leave a comment or review. We really do appreciate it. Remember, you can always get in touch with MPB News on Facebook and Twitter. And fresh episodes of the podcast are posted every weekday morning. I'm Karen Brown. Thanks for listening. This is Mississippi Edition from MPB Think Radio.